Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you very much for joining us. My name is Max Delaney, and I'm Artistic Director at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this afternoon's symposium, which kicks off a series of public discussions related to ACCA's current exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. We are gathered here on the Birrarung, in what has become known as the Queen Victoria Gardens, only metres away from what has also become known during the Commonwealth Games as Camp Sovereignty. So I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Boomerang, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this afternoon. Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism is an exhibition which explores the diverse scope of feminist art practice. The exhibition has been developed by a curatorial team which includes Paola Bella, Julie Ewington, Vicky McInnes, Elvis Richardson, together with ACCA's senior curator Annika Christensen and myself, and involves contributions from over 50 artists, filmmakers, performers, among many other contributors. Asking why feminism is still relevant, necessary and critical today, Unfinished Business explores transgenerational legacies, inheritances and shifts, alongside contemporary conditions and concerns, to stimulate new debates and discussions around the unfinished business of feminism today. This afternoon's um, panel discussion, We Won't Be Silenced, Women in and of the Media, is the first symposium in a series of public forums titled Unfinished Conversations, designed to address the most urgent questions. Related to feminism today. Considering strategies and, and analyses of gender identity, representation and intersectional politics, and much else besides, and we're delighted to welcome an illustrious group of contributors to inaugurate and activate these discussions this afternoon. So before introducing our guest speakers, I'd like to thank our partners for the, their support of the public program series, including symposium partner, the Sheila Foundation for Women in the Arts, lead partner, the Trawalla Foundation, program partner, the University of Melbourne, government partner, the Office of Prevention of Women's Equality, Symposium Media Partner, Art Guide Australia. And many thanks also to M Pavilion for hosting this afternoon's launch event. It's always a great pleasure to be here and we thank Jessie French and her team. And I'd also like to acknowledge ACCA's curator, public programs, Annabelle Lacroix, for coordinating this afternoon's event and the many public discussions and performance programs that will take place over the coming six weeks. And, and Annabelle will also have a microphone for questions um, from the floor uh, as the conversation unfolds. Um, Today's discussion will explore feminist analyses and strategies relating to the role and representation of women, non-binary and gender diverse people in the media, um, as well as new forms of publishing, feminist writing and text as form. I'd like to welcome and introduce our guests. Uh, next to me is Deb Verhoeven, who will both contribute um, as, to, as a presenter but also will moderate the discussion that unfolds. Uh, Professor Deb Verhoeven is a writer, film critic, broadcaster, academic and Associate Dean of Engagement and Innovation at the University of Technology in Sydney. She is an agitator, a commentator and a critic. She's the author of more than 100 journal articles and book chapters, as well as a book on Jane Campion published by Routledge in 2009. Deb's a former CEO of the Australian Film Institute and Deputy Chair of the National Film and Sound Archive, as well as former Chair of the widely read journal Senses of Cinema, and also um, previously editor for the journal um, studies in Australasian cinema, Australasian cinema. 
Deb is Honorary Life Member of Women in Film and Television and has written widely on gender representation in film and academia. In 2015, the lecture of Debs went viral as she called out gender bias in an academic conference setting. And more recently, her research has gained widespread media attention for lifting the veil on the woeful underrepresentation of women in relation to academic research funding and her finding that there were more people called David who received funding in a recent grant round than women altogether. I call this the diversity problem. Deb um, is also joined um, this afternoon by Bridget Delaney, uh, no relation, who is a journalist and um, author at The Guardian Australia. Her book, Wellmania, a critical review of the wellness industry, was released in 2017 by Black Ink. She is the author of Wild Things and This Restless Life. She's worked for the Telegraph News Group, the London Bureau of CNN, as well as freelance reporter and writer. Her writing has appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, ABC Online, The Age, Qantas Magazine, uh, Vogue, The Spectator and The Griffith Review. And Bridget is also the co-founder of the anti-death penalty group, The Mercy Campaign. Natalie Thomas um, is an artist and a, um, a fierce advocate for the participation of women in the arts. She is the founder and of the writer of the popular blog Natty Solo, One Woman, One Camera, No Film, which focuses on the social side of contemporary art. She was also part of the duo Natanelli, um, and her, she's a participating artist in the exhibition Unfinished Business at ACCA. Uh, and um, to kick off proceedings today, um, we're also really delighted to welcome Nayuka Gori, um, who is a Kurnai Gunai, Gundajmara, Wiradjuri, and Yorta Yorta woman. She's passionate about self-determination and culture, and um, Nayuka has really emerged as a compelling writer primarily concerned with black politics, queerness and feminism. She's written incisively on topics such as her evolving views about constitutional recognition. She's performed her work at Women of Letters, produced an event for the Melbourne Fringe and is more re recently writing for television, including black comedy. Um, can you please join me in welcoming our guests this, after this afternoon? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I've got 10 minutes, so it's 3.17 now. Hopefully I won't go over 3.27 because that'll get boring. Um, I'm pulling out my phone because I wrote notes um, because I am a millennial and that is what we do. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Boonarong country and it's really bloody hot, so thanks for coming out today. I know we're all a bit sweaty and whatever, but... Feel free to get up and get a bev if you need. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm primarily concerned today, um, and the thing I really want to talk about today is black women in the media, um, because I think that's, like, if we're talking about silencing, that's, I don't know, it's impossible to talk about silencing in any part of this country and not talk about Aboriginal people. Um, and I think also in the last week we've had an interesting, um, an interesting case study which I'd like to talk about, um, that being Tarnine Onus-Williams, a Gunajamara woman, and my cousin who has been absolutely vilified. So what better time to talk about, talk about that? Um, so when I was thinking about today, there were like kind of five, five different things I suppose I 
that came to my mind when I thought about women in the media. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I just want to be straight up. I'm not non-binary and I'm not gender diverse either. So I don't feel, I know that this panel said that that's what this is about, but um, I'm, a, I'm a woman, um, probably not a very good one. So I can't speak to those experiences. So I just want to acknowledge in terms of silencing, um, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not that, so I can't, I can't really speak to that. And my apologies for anyone in the audience who, yeah, perhaps wanted trans or non-binary or gender-diverse people, because um, I can only speak for myself. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I said, there are five things that come to mind for me personally. Um, when I look at the media and... Yeah, they are... Who is there, so who is being spoken about? Who is not there? Who is writing? What is being said? And who benefits from that writing? Um, and I know they're really simple things, but it definitely helps me to understand that the way black people are spoken about and black women are spoken about. So there's a few different case studies I wanted to talk about in the next... I think I've got about seven minutes now. Um, from what I can observe, black women... There's a few different, I guess, tropes or a few different ways that we're spoken about by particular people that serve, in my mind, a colonial agenda. Um, the first, and that, that this is what we've seen this week, the first trope is that of the angry black woman. Um, and I'll go a bit into more... Yeah, I'll go a bit into more later, but I'll keep talking about the other ones. So there's the angry black woman, um, and that's, you know, that is Tarnin this week. Um... There is also the Aboriginal woman who is cowering in the hut. So, yeah, this is the Aboriginal woman that has been rescued, I guess, or is a bit of a victim. Um, and mostly we're cowering in the hut, apparently, from other black men. Um, so that is another trope that I find really interesting. The other black woman who is in the media is the assimilationist. So most recently um, you would have seen people like Jacinta Price and her mother Bess Price. Um, yeah, I would, if I was to categorise those people, I would call them assimilationist. Um, coincidentally, they also get a lot of airtime from right-wing media. Um, yeah, so people like that. The other type of um, black woman is the exceptional black woman. The black woman who's breaking stereotypes and is really good for her people um, sometimes coincides with the assimilationist, but not always. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a bit about each person then and then sort of touch on some other things, if that's cool with everyone. So, the angry black woman, and this week it has been Tarnine. So, for those who don't know, um, it was Invasion Day on the 26th of January and um, has been kind of tradition since... Uh, William Cooper and other Yorta Yorta mob from Kamragunja declared 80 years ago that it was to be a day of mourning. There's been some kind of day to long before Yoles were celebrating, celebrating Australia Day. Um, yeah, there's been an event to mark that as a day of mourning or a day of protest. And so last week there, um, there was a huge one here in Melbourne. I, I heard there are up to 60,000 people who marched on Invasion Day last Saturday. And was this... No, it was Friday. My apologies. Um... Yeah, and one of the organisers was Tarnine Onus-Williams, um, who's a Gunajamara woman, um, and she, 
she organised a rally, so managed to mobilise 60,000 people. And then, um, and then, yeah, while she was talking, she, uh, she said, I hope, fuck Australia, I hope it burns to the ground. Um, I share her sentiments. Um, and it's been really interesting to observe because, firstly, it was a metaphor um, and it's like suddenly the media have forgotten what a metaphor is. Um, but it's, it's also been interesting that how uncomfortable it has made people feel um, and how people have really felt the need to distance themselves. Um, yeah, so even we had people like Warren Mundine, the aforementioned assimilationist type, um, who was very quick to distance himself from that. Um, but... In terms of being... There was something about Tarnine I that made people very uncomfortable. And I think it is because people expect black women... You know, she wasn't fitting all the other kind of tropes, so it made people deeply uncomfortable. But also, in general, I think black uh, settlers... So, people... Yeah, people living in a settler colonial state, such as Australia, um, it kind of expect black people to be grateful. And when we are angry... Um, yeah, when we remind people that, yeah, when we kind of make people uncomfortable, there's a really huge pushback. So it's been interesting to observe that. We, I don't think black people should be grateful for colonisation. I'd love to know what my people could have been without, um, without colonisation. Um, but that's all conjecture, I suppose. But, yeah, observing what Tarnine has gone through. So... In terms of the media, she had people who were obviously publications who were sympathetic and who reported on the fact that actually that rally was a huge, like 60,000 people, that's huge. That was the biggest event on Invasion Day. That says something about this nation, which perhaps is a good, yeah, maybe there's something good about that, uh, that we are mature enough to have a conversation about it. Um, but then also she's been absolutely, as we have seen before, with women like Yasmin Abdul-Magid, absolutely, like, vilified by the media. So she, um, yeah, she's, her brother, weird coincidence, but her brother was on Married at First Sight, um, which is a very, you know, very different parts of Australia there. But um, her brother was on Married at First Sight and held a private screening on Monday night and the Daily Mail were there hounding her family and hounding her on the phone the next day and then realised that she was the activist sister of. Um, so there were a lot of stories about that. Um, but it's interesting. As soon as, we, as soon as we aren't complicit in our oppression, then we are absolutely demonised. And, yeah, it's like people think we should be grateful um, for colonisation, which is a bit absurd because that's like being asked to be grateful for the patriarchy. Um, but anyway, then, of course, there's the cowering in huts. So this is that, um, you know, basically we are victims of black men and that we've been rescued from black men. Um, and, yeah, someone... someone uh, who was it? It was a, a former Labor politician who referred to us as cash cows, Aboriginal women. This was on, I think, the Andrew Bolt show, yeah, a few years ago. Aboriginal women are basically cash cows for Aboriginal men to get money from the government and just keep pumping those kids out, apparently. So we must be rescued. Um, then I've touched on the assimilationist a fair bit. That's, I suppose, people who expect... People who, 
they get kind of this is not necessarily black women but it does they get do get propped up a lot if they happen to serve a colonial agenda um, and Jacinta Price, as I mentioned, is a really good example of that, um, that we should be grateful for colonisation and that there is something inherent, perhaps, perhaps inherently bad about being Aboriginal or Aboriginal culture. Um, and, yeah, the exceptionalism. Um, I think a good person, I'm, not that she's not assimilationist, but women like Cathy Freeman, for example, or Nova Paris kind of will get propped up because... Or, you know, they'll have be asked for their opinion on something or they'll be asked to do ad campaigns or whatever it might be because they're, you know, breaking stereotypes and they're really good Aboriginal women. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I mean by that. Um, there are, of course, women that we don't hear about, black women. So when we're thinking about who is not there... That's often, as is the case with all women and um, as is the case on this panel as well, trans women um, and black trans women, if, we're think if I'm considering black women, often left out um, and spoken about in the media in a really appalling way um, and ways that are really dangerous. Um, I am running out of time and we'll get a chance to yarn. Um, but finally, I just wanted to... Um, leave with some people, black women in the media who bloody rule, and if you're not already following, do follow them. Um, Amy McGuire, um, so she works, she's a reporter for BuzzFeed. She also just started a podcast called Curtain, um, and she's just an incredible black woman. Amy McGuire, Celeste Little, um, I'm sure us in Melbourne folks, we should know who Celeste is. Um, but she is absolutely incredible um, and has been writing and kind of, yeah, definitely paved the way for myself. Um, those are two that I'm thinking of right now. I'll keep thinking about other incredible... Oh, and Nakia Louie is another writer who is absolutely brilliant. Um, I've spoken a lot. I don't know if it's been interesting or not. Um, but, yeah, there'll be questions. And if I've missed out on anything or you want to know more, yeah, do that thing. Thank you. Bridget, over to you. She's put a clock on as well. The pressure's on. <laughs> yes, pressure's on. Um, so I'm just going to talk a bit about... Uh, so it's 3.29, uh, 10 minutes. Um, so I'm going to talk about my own experience working in the media um, and I'm going to... I'm going to look at a bit about what's happened with the shift from print to online and how that might um, negatively impact women in the media. Um, so I used to be a lawyer in a country town and I was the only female in this firm which was very blokey and there were no female role models and it, it didn't work out so well for me there and I lasted a couple of years and then left and I went to Sydney and started as a journalist in 2001 at the Sydney Morning Herald as a cadet. Um, so this was pre-internet. Um, the internet was just starting but everyone got their news, you know, pretty much in, in the paper um, once a day. It was a completely different, different world. And I found as a trainee there were four women, four men. It was a bit Hunger Games style. We were told that at the end of the year, four of us would have a job. Um, so it was very competitive. 
but in those early years, there were a lot of, uh, I guess there were baby boomer women who'd really cleared a path for the next generation. So there were a lot of incredibly strong women in that newsroom. Um, so people who are still there, like Kate McClymont, who breaks amazing sort of crime stories. Um, there were people reporting on everything from urban affairs to courts, um, to politics and um, gender didn't really seem to matter. It was very much based on could you get the yarn, could you break the story, um, you know, could you deliver for the paper. So in that way, there was a, it, it was a meritocracy of sorts. Um, so I was at the Herald for about five years and then um, went overseas, went to London and then basically the digital revolution happened and I came back to Australia and the landscape was completely different. So um, newspapers were losing vast amounts of money. There were wave after wave of redundancies and, um, you know, the kind of senior people being able to report, do like three or four stories a year and earn 200 grand and really kind of chip away at stuff was gone and it was a lot more um, quick hits. So, um, you know, I struggled to get a job uh, when I got back and I um, taught uh, journalism at Monash and what I found from the young female students that I had around that time was that they were interested in journalism, sort of, but they were put off by um, a lot of the trolling that they were seeing in, in articles under, below the line in the comments section. So, um, you know, they weren't necessarily seeing that on articles written by men that, you know, the, the author was fat and therefore didn't deserve um, a platform or that um, why are we reading about you know, this piece of shit when it's something that might be female orientated like, I don't know, craft or something. So, suddenly with the online space and opening up comments and having this two-way interaction with readers, um, there was suddenly the sense that the readers didn't necessarily like women occupying spaces and having a voice and particularly in columns where it's very much your personal experience and how you see the world. So that, I mean, that came of a, a bit of a sheltered person. That was a, a, an actual real life shock for me that um, I could write a column about, um, I don't know, like seeing a band or, um, you know, uh, falling off a boat, whatever. And you get this absolute hatred saying how, you know, why am I wasting my time reading this shit? And, so it then caused me and a lot of other women that I spoke to self-consciousness about being in the public space and feeling like um, if I write something that is pure and is unguarded, I'm going to get punished. And um, so the, the young women that I was teaching were really aware of that and they, these were 18 and 19-year-olds and these were people that were deciding not to enter the profession because they just didn't think that it was worth it, you know, to be... I mean, we just heard before about what happened um, with people like Yasmin. You stick your head above the parapet and it's not just people below the line commenting. It's huge um, media organisations like News Corp and The Australian who won't just take a pot shot. 
they'll get a massive like bomb and throw it at you and try and obliterate you. So um, it really does, uh, I guess it does give people pause for thought about going into, into newsrooms. And um, in some ways I think organisations are culpable and they, they're not showing women reporters a duty of care. And it's not just women, obviously. It's, um, you know, it's, it's anyone who is, um, you know, non-binary, person of colour, queer, um, indigenous. So an example is the Guardian commissioned a massive study about um, negative comments, you know, online below, below the article. And they found that the writers that received the most abuse were, I think it was the first one was Muslim women, then it was black women, then it was white women or, you know, uh, might be Indian women or whatever. Then it was um, black men <laughs> and, and on it went until the, the people that received the least abuse on their articles were white middle-aged men um, and some young men and some old men. Um, so just men um, and men called David. So whilst at The Guardian, a lot of my male colleagues were very supportive of, or, you know, would have a beer with me, uh, you know, after I had a particularly upsetting day reading the comments and they'd say, oh, this is terrible. But it's like, you guys, pro you guys don't get this. Like, you can write without, without being, um, you know, self-conscious or afraid. So, I mean, I'm sure we all know of people who've had, I mean, definitely... I have friends and colleagues who've had death and rape threats um, for story, very innocuous stories that they've published in The Guardian or on other places. And, um, you know, the, the, the police are slow to act because of the, the you know, just the laws are, I think it's, um, you know, threats over some sort of carriage of service, which is like an 1825 piece of legislation or whatever, which hasn't adapted to the internet age. Um, so if, if you're a woman in the media and you are able to, you, you have the privilege of writing first person or telling your story, you pay a price for that because people, you know, people will threaten to kill and rape you um, just by being uh, yourself. Uh, so The Guardian gave me a column, a first person column a couple of years ago and um, it was just, it's called Bridget Delaney's Diaries and it's about what I do each week. So it's really, sometimes it's light, sometimes it's heavy, um, sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. But uh, after two weeks it was obvious that this column was just attracting so much hate and so much bile that they made the uh, unusual decision to remove comments. So no one can comment on my articles anymore and I love it. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's, um, and that kind of, I think we might end up going back, you know, the old days of the newspaper, all these brilliant, confident women that I worked with at the SMH, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if part of their confidence and their gutsiness and their long careers, their long, well-paid careers, were due to the fact that they didn't have to put up with this shit. Like, they just rolled on. They were incredibly, like, proud, confident, um, aggressive because they needed to be and they weren't sitting around at the pub crying because someone had called them fat online.
So, um, yeah, so that's uh, my experience of uh, being a woman in the media. We are in, I think we're in pretty, I think we're in pretty bad times, but I, I love um, forums like this to be able to really talk about some of the issues and, you know, make everyone aware of, of what's going on. So, yeah, thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Natalie Thomas and I'm an artist and I've also taken to writing quite recently, probably in about the last two and a half years or so. So this came out of really um, a career lull, something that artists don't really want to talk about it that often, but when you're uh, dedicating your life to something but n not actually getting anywhere. Um, so I started my blog really because I couldn't get an art show and the blog is really about the media, but it's also a performance artwork where I go along to art openings and then I take photos of who's there, um, the artwork as well, and then I go home. I very seldom read um, media releases. I'm really sus on some of the, uh, the narratives that were being sold by... Um, cultural institutions, I guess, that everything's fine and dandy right now, when I just don't think that it is. Um, I think the media's in crisis and that out of that crisis that there's some room in which some good stuff can happen. Um, I'm really looking towards artists. I almost categorise people now before I write about them. Are you part of the problem in that you're just trying to do well in the current systems... Or are you trying to actually take on the systems and change them for the good of everyone? And I think that uh, I really try and focus on the people who are trying to change the systems in which we're living because I think the systems that are governing us are really, really messed up right now um, and getting worse perhaps daily. I mean, every time you check your news feed, the rich people have just gotten richer you know, I think that we really need to look at workers' rights, for instance, and unions and some of the bad press that unions um, are confronting. And, you know, artists make culture and culture changes the discourse. So I'm really looking for people and trying to draw attention to people who are actively trying to change the public discourse. So just in thinking about uh, women in the media... I made a list of people in the media that I think could... It, we would all be better off if they were just deleted. <laughs> um, I've got, of course, Alan Jones, Ray Hadley, Rupert Murdoch, Sam Newman, Eddie Maguire, Bill Leake, Prince Philip, Tony Abbott, Peter Dutton, Kerry Stokes and Tim Whoopsie Werner from Channel 7, David Kosh, Steve Price, Philip Ruddick, Tony Jones, Darren Hinch, The Human Headline, Red Simmons... Someone like Pauline Hanson, her, her rise has been very dependent on just excessive media coverage. And then John Howard, whose policies opened the door for someone like Pauline Hanson. Uh, Michelle Guthrie, who used to work for Rupert and now is um, the head of the ABC and perhaps working to gut that internally. And media, Mia Friedman, who's... 
I've been looking at Mia Friedman this week and, you know, if you want to look at Australia and say what's going wrong, I think having a good old look at Mia Friedman is a good place to start. You know, on her Wikipedia page, she's they list her as a media mogul. You know, she's a multimillionaire and her website is attracting four million female Australian readers a week. And I think that that's a shocking indictment of where mainstream media is right now. Um, So if you look at some of the things that Mia... I mean, Mia Friedman, really, the fact that she's even a player in the Australian media, yeah, it's bad. (laughs) Um, But I'm also sort of interested in these... what do they call them, those silos where, you know, you go on your Facebook feed and you end up just reading echo chambers. You know, I think it's really important every now and again to step outside of your echo chamber and to see what's going on in the mainstream because, you know, I think we are spending a lot of time preaching to the converted and to actually get in there and have a bit of a troll around I think is really funny. Or not funny, but you know, have a little bit of a scratch around. I think it's really important to know the enemy right now. Um, I've been looking a lot at what goes on at the NGV. Uh, The NGV is Australia's largest funded art museum, our most beloved art museum. And I think that You know, I, for one, am really sick of uh, fashion shows masquerading as art and I'm really sus on the idea that um, attendance figures are the only judgment of quality. Um, Just like Mia Friedman attracts a lot of readers, so therefore she's a success, when actually, you know, if you look at what she says and what she thinks, it can't really... You can't hold it up to scrutiny. It's just trash, you know. And I think in a, a lot of ways the story that the NGV is telling us that, you know, Victoria is this cultural capital of Australia and, and it's very top-heavy, so it's actually becomes this neoliberal model where they throw a lot of shade on local arts makers because they're just so dependent on a really truckload of money to do what they do. I mean, during the Kristen Dior show, you could go along and see uh, Miranda Kerr's wedding dress or at the ball that they threw themselves, which was really a ball, the inaugural NGV ball, uh, a $500 a ticket party where you could go and see Nicole Kidman um, meet the dress that she wore to the Oscars when she was still going out with, you know... Tom Cruise and it's all lined with mink and this is just big business but also it's about these lies that women are are sold through the beauty industry and the fashion industry and also the rise and rise of celebrity culture. I'm really dark on celebrity culture. I mean, I say that I'm (laughs) kind of uh, looking at it closely because I really want to dump on it but, you know... Maybe I've probably gone a bit past that now and I should have stopped reading already about the Kardashians or something. But it is like watching a cultural train wreck. You know, it's like where 
you can just attack them from so many different sides that it's unbelievable that it's out there. But I think someone like Rupert Murdoch, you know, I think that his power over us is sort of waning and you can feel that things are shifting. Um, and I think that, you know, Twitter and social media, F Facebook and Instagram are really interesting for forums for artists to use because if people aren't speaking bullshit, it sort of really comes through quite strongly. So I think that they're really great platforms on which independent artists can get a voice and sort of go around some of these really patriarchal authoritative figures of, you know, old white men who own everything, pretend they're not. Um, and also I look when I'm reading online, I'm looking for just little... Sometimes people say the wrong thing and that's giving away a lot and Sam Dastiari did this. Uh, before he was sacked or sort of moved on. And he said that there's 10 companies in Australia that, have, uh, that are running the place, basically, that they've undermined democracy, and that's the four large banks, uh, three miners, Rio Tinto, BHP and Fortescue Metals, the two Coles and Woolworths, that duopoly, and then Telstra. And I think that these companies are our corporate masters now. And it's, I think we need to speak to that. You know, friends tell me... Because when I started my blog, you know, I'm just really impersonating the media, really. But now I'm sort of starting to become the media, perhaps. I don't know. But if you follow the money, you can see these relationships in a different way. And then s stuff starts to make sense. And I think that... Often culture is used, like I think that the NGV, some of these posh get-togethers that they have, really it's just like a clubhouse for your super wealthy people who are really running the joint. So, you know, right now I'd much rather go to an art show at an artist-run space with lesser-known artists and draw attention to that, I think. I think I'm going to look at that a lot this year. Thanks, Nat. Is everyone hot? Yes, because the world is heating up. The world is heating up at many levels. The world is heating up because we've got climate change and it's also heating up, I think, because politically things are hotting up. And what I want to talk about for the next hopefully only 10 minutes is what the implications of that heating up might be. Who's read The Power? Okay, this is the latest kind of uh, neo-pop feminist novel. It's kind of fun. In this novel, women discover they have the power. With the flick of their fingers, they can elect electrocute men. Um, and so consequently, the world changes dramatically. And the book starts with this really wonderful paragraph, which is something I've been reflecting on for years, and I was shocked when I opened the book, not electrically, just shocked, when I opened the book to read this paragraph. And the paragraph goes, The shape of power is always the same. It's the shape of a tree branching and rebranching, spreading wider and ever thinner in searching fingers. The shape of power is the outline of a living thing straining outwards, sending its tendrils a little further and a little further yet. Okay. What is the shape of power? It's a great question. The author of the book, Naomi Alderman, 
almost gets it right. I've spent the last two years trying to work out what the shape of power is, and I'm going to show you what the shape of power is. I have my poster assistants, who I will be calling on at various points to demonstrate to you the shape of power. Why am I interested in the shape of power? It comes directly out of a, a moment from the middle of my ever-unfurling midlife crisis, and I'm going to tell you about it. So about 18 months ago, I was sitting at my desk, and this Screen Australia, the, the governing body for film funding in this country, released its data on the participation of women in the industry. They do this every year. I opened the email and just about hit the roof. In fact, I think I did hit the roof. In a kind of combustible moment, I was so angry because not only was the data terrible, it was worse than when I started as an activist in the film industry 30 years ago. And at that moment, I had the meltdown to all, mend all meltdowns. You think you're hot now? You should have been in that room. I absolutely went berserk at not just the situation that women in the industry continue to find themselves in, but at my own wasted life. That's why it was a midlife crisis moment, because all midlife crises are a combination of hubris and despair. Hubris, because obviously it wasn't just my role. I didn't have just one job. In fact, I had many jobs. But one of those jobs was to make the industry a better place for women, and I failed really, really badly. So, in that moment, and it literally was just all in one very clarifying moment, several things occurred to me at the same time. The first thing was, I was never going to release that data. Because every time we release that bad data, it's a disincentive for women to continue to participate in the industry. Why bother? Okay? And what that tells you is that data has power. It influences actions. It influences people. So then I just parked that for a little minute. The second really exceptionally clarifying thing that occurred to me was we have had 30 years of bad data. We are clearly looking at the wrong problem. Okay. What are we doing? What do we think we're fixing? And what we continue to think we're fixing is women. We give women confidence training classes. We give them seed funding just so they can have a little start, a taste. We give them... Uh, development funding, seed funding, we give them... What do we give them? We, give, well, we don't give them anything that's of any consequence. That's what we're doing. We basically isolate the problem as being women. Women have to change. Women have to improve. Women have to get better in order to bask in the full glory of funding in the Australian film industry, which they're never going to get, and the data tells us that. It's a red herring. Okay? Women are not the problem. Women are not stopping themselves from success in the industry. The generations, plural, of beneficiaries of Australian film funding are not women. They are men. And they are the ones that are continuing to dominate. Why aren't we looking at that? Why are we not looking at the problem being a problem of gatekeeping? What would happen if we started collecting data about male behaviour? What would happen if we started to look at the shape of domination in the film industry? So that's what I decided to do. I started collecting data on the film industry, behavioural data, not aggregate data. One of the problems with the way we think about data is we treat data 
as something that's immutable, that it presents us with a description of the world as it is, not as a representation of the world in one incarnation that can be changed. When we describe the film industry that has only 4% of women being cinematographers, 4% of cinematographers being women, or 16% of directors being women, we look at that data and we say, that's terrible. But it doesn't offer us an alternative view. It doesn't help us understand how to change that data. The data I want to work with is data that enables us to intervene in the description of the world. I want to, I want to look, work with data that gives us opportunities to think about how to make change, how to change the shape of the industry, away from an industry that's defined by domination, patterns of domination, into an industry that's open to all the people who currently sit at the margins or outside it, who aren't even in the data at all. Okay? So, what I did is I did what's called network analysis. And I want to show you an image of the Australian film industry, image number one. Thank you, poster person. This is the Australian film industry. Only the key creatives, because one of the things the Australian film industry focuses on is data about who is a key creative in the industry. So a key creative is a producer, a director, or a writer for the purposes of this analysis. What we have here in the very centre is a little knot of nodules. That is a film called The Turning. Interestingly, the visualisation turns around The Turning. Each red dot is a key creative or blue dot is a key creative. Red dots are men, blue dots are women. When you have something curving out clockwise, like here or here, the source dot or node, what we call a node, is a producer because producers make the decisions about who is above the line in the film industry. So the source is always a dot that you have a clockwise edge or line coming out of. So the, the red dot with a line coming out of it is a male producer connected to another producer or a writer or a director. So this shows you how teams are formed, creative teams in the industry. And the first thing you'll note is there's a lot of all red ones. All red, 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 all, all of them, all red. What are they? They are all male creative teams. How many male producers in the Australian film industry only worked with men over a 10-year period? This is a 10-year snapshot. 89. 89 men never worked with a single woman in 10 years in a key creative role. Boo. What do we do with that information? How do I get back to that idea that I only want to work with data that shows me how to make change? Who uses data to make change in these networks? Okay, and there is an answer to this, and this is where I pull back that, that thing about data having power. Who uses data powerfully? And the answer is the police and counter-terrorism agencies. And what they would do with a diagram like this is they would identify the key players, the key players in a drug cartel, for example, or the key players in a terrorist network, and they would take them out. <laughs> so if we go to diagram number two, these are the men who didn't work with any women. I know their names. I know who he is. I know who he is. 
If I take them out of the network, I open the network up and I achieve that state that I was talking about earlier in which people can move more freely through networks and actually encourage people even outside the network to enter. A more open network enables more fluidity and movement for all groups, not just the dominant one. What we have around the edges are what the police would call isolates. Isolates are really interesting because in the past, when the police found them, they would think they were irrelevant to the main game. But then they, on reconsideration, realised that the thing, interesting thing with isolates is that isolates tell you you're not looking at all the data that you need to know. So if I do a... Uh, this is a very simplistic analysis, by the way. It's very binary. Red, blue. Red for men, blue for women. If I do a more detailed analysis of what characterises the isolates in this network, there is one thing that links them to the middle. Okay, so they're not necessarily directly working with each other, but they share a characteristic, they share an attribute. It's not race. It's not age. The thing that links all the isolates to the people in the middle, private boys' schools. Okay, it's class. We're not doing enough analysis of that in our creative industries. We focus a little bit on gender. We might focus on some other attributes. We rarely focus on class. It's clearly a dominant variable that we need to be thinking about in relation to conformity and domination in the creative industries. Okay, so that's, that's how it works for the Australian film industry. I then tested it on the German film industry and the Swedish film industry. What did I find? The number of, or sorry, the percentage of male producers who worked with no women in the Australian film industry over 10 years was 41%. The number in Sweden, 46%. The number in Germany, 43%. The number of male producers who worked with zero to one, so they were prepared to work with a woman, but just one. In Australia, 75%. In Germany, 75%. In Sweden, 74%. Okay. What, is, what is this telling us? This is telling us something incredibly interesting, which is that we believe our version of patriarchy to be unique. Okay. That the problems we have are problems to do with Australia, for example, Australian funding systems or whatever. Uh-uh. It is not a unique experience. We are divided and we are conquered similarly across very different industries. And we need to start putting those pieces together and not thinking that we ourselves are somehow isolated and siloed in the way that we're told we are. I also tested it on my industry, which is academic research funding, and if we could go to the next visualisation, this is the world I live in. Red is men. Okay? Look at that and weep. That is me. Right on the edge. I did get funding once. This is what I call a period piece, a clusterfuck, or a bloodbath, depending on what day of the week it is. It is appalling. This is where the phrase diversity came from. There are 131 Davids in this visualisation. Uh, this is not good. Can we have a look at what the male teams look like? This is male 
only teams. The average team size in this industry is 12. 12. They couldn't find a woman in a team of 12. Again, not especially good. So when people talk about the shape of patriarchy, you might have an image of Harvey Weinstein flashing your mind. I don't know. Tony Abbott. Any of the people that were read out earlier. This is what patriarchy looks like. This. Okay? This is the shape of domination. And we know their names. Why do cultural industries, who apparently hold the value of diversity and equity, continue to fund men who can only work with a mirror image of themselves? Okay. What is that saying about the values of our industry? What it's saying is that this is lip service. Okay. If you really believed in diversity, you would not fund people with no track record for diversity. Sorry. It's pretty simple. This is an efficient, immediate, very cheap solution to diversity problems. Stop funding them. You could do it tomorrow. Would not take any effort. There are some alternative solutions, and I'm now running some really quite interesting data analysis on what we can... So there's two, two ways to open up the network. One is to pull the, the key players out, which I described earlier, the criminal network analysis. The other is to put more connections into the network. Um, which is a kind of version of affirmative action. So we're testing these hypothetical models to see which ones are, in fact, the most effective, and we'll probably know this in the next couple of weeks. Um, again, it'll probably fall on deaf ears, but definitely the, you know, there are potential ways of working with data to try and drive evidence-driven policy that would be effective rather than what we've lived with for a very long time, which is ineffective policy-making that I believe is actually designed to distract us from the real problem. Okay. So, how do we think then about what it means to give shape to relationships? If we can give shape to relationships, if we can recognise the quality of relationships by their shape, what does that mean about how we understand ourselves? And what does that mean about how we can redress the uneven patterns of interaction and coexistence that shape our lives as we live them, not just in theory or on a piece of paper, but in the way we actually undertake what we do every day. What if we could use data to see the contours of injustice and that we could bring into sight structures of domination like this everywhere? There wouldn't be a need for us, for example, after the fact to deal with the trail of evidence of patriarchy, like what is going on at the moment with Me Too, where we have to wait for women who have been visibly and tangibly and professionally affected by domination in the workplace, for example, or in their personal lives, to come forward and talk about it after the fact. What if we could walk into an organisation and show exactly where the problems are and show what the shape of domination looks like within an organisation or within a film crew or within a gallery. We can actually do that. It's not a what if. It's a now. Okay. I think this approach would lead us to understand some of the seemingly intractable inequities that we face as both systemic and individual. 
And it's in a way what we're doing is going back to the 70s and giving power to that very, you know, familiar feminist phrase, the personal is political, okay, and vice versa. I think we're at that point where we can actually demonstrate that now using an evidence base. But it also requires us, as I said earlier, to value a notion of openness that I'm not sure we're really at ourselves as feminists. And what that means is thinking about the intersectional, thinking about the intergenerational, thinking about the interdisciplinary, thinking about, as I said earlier, the international. This is not just a unique situation in our own administrative region. And thinking about it in terms of interoperability, that what we know and learn, we can pass on into different contexts as well. So I guess my challenge is that if we really value opening up of networks, then that's something we also ourselves have to consider in our, in our own day-to-day -day lives and in the way we express our coexistence with each other. Thank you. Thank you to my poster people. <laughs> We think there might be questions. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yes. It would be really great if people of colour could ask questions as well. I've yes, done please. so many panels where only white people ask me questions and it's really annoying. I agree. No, you're not coming through. We can't hear you, though. Is, is the talk you just gave, is that going to be published? Parts of it have been published online. So if you Google um, women are not the problem, men are, um, or you hashtag diversity is another one, you'll see some articles. Um, if you go to my website, debverhoven.com, some of it's up there as well. There will also be some quite formal academic publications that come out of this, um, which will be incomprehensible to anyone who doesn't understand ancient Greek and kind of data modelling, but... Um, I've just got a few questions, I guess, about the data that you collected and the process behind it. And so as you were talking about how horrible it must have felt having seen that data, that nothing had changed, um, one of the things I guess I wonder about that there is that is part of the, what's being reflected, not just the fact that it is all still really messed up because I don't dispute it and I think it has gotten a lot worse for a number of reasons, the internet being part of that there where it's just been like a horrible source of food for just perpetuating all this stuff. Um, but there is another side about that that I think about which comes down to are women getting better at identifying this stuff and then when it comes to expressing their opinions and thoughts in response to these surveys... How does that come about being reflected there? Um, and I guess just your overall thoughts um, of what you've found throughout your research about the subjectivity in data um, when it's sort of created from a male perspective versus a female perspective. There's about seven questions in there. I'll, I know, I got I'll all jumbled up, all my head thoughts, sorry. And then I'm going to hand over to the other panellists. So uh, two quick responses. 
Um, the first one is that the data that I drew on for the Australian film industry, I had to gather myself because the Australian film industry is not cooperating with this sort of analysis. So I'm not able to get data from Screen Australia, for example. The Swedish Film Institute gave me data and the Germans gave me data, but the Australians won't. So what we did is we scraped data about the Australian Film Institute Awards and all the films that were submitted to the Australian Film Institute Awards. So this is... Um, data that's sort of, in a sense, uh, already present. So we're just simply reusing existing data for that. Uh, and what that, that has both advantages and limitations. You know, so we're not representing the government's collection of data in any way. Um, this is um, what we would call, um, I guess, behavioural data in that it's, it's already out there and it's, already, it's, it's describing something that has occurred rather than something that should have occurred, which is often what you get with government data. Uh, and it doesn't have the same stereotype bias that you get from government data, which is built often around surveys. So on the question of surveys, I've just um, been part of my midlife crisis, packing up my archive at home. And as I'm doing that, I keep coming across all these surveys that I collected from the 80s and 90s, which were done on the Australian film industry by consultants, usually, or teams of researchers. And they, in fact, asked similar questions across the, that period of surveying. We don't do this sort of surveying anymore because the government says it has enough information and it knows that it doesn't need to do anything. So, um, but what we, do, what we did prior to that is there was a kind of a much larger capacity for curiosity in the industry, particularly around uh, the participation of women and people of non-English-speaking non backgrounds. So there were lots of surveys done on that basis. The surveys are really interesting because they ask the respondents about sexual harassment and gatekeeping. And they explicitly talk about practices of exclusion. Um, and that's stuff that we're not talking about anymore. And I think that's really interesting. And what's really, really interesting is the recommendations of those reports. And uh, the one in 1987 came up with nine recommendations. They are still standing. None of those recommendations were enacted. And in fact, any of them could be. And it would make the industry a more interesting and better place. So I think we have a, an argument to make for negligence. I think the funding agencies have known about this problem for a very long time. They've been given high-quality and well-researched advice. The recommendations have been put together and made, and nothing was done. That's negligence. And I think there's a class action in it. I think women in the film industry should be standing up and saying, you knew... You knew all along and you did nothing and instead what you gave us was rubbish. You know, you gave us confidence training. Thanks. Does anyone else want to kind of talk about their experiences of being surveyed or surveying? I, I have some issues around surveying. Aboriginal people, um, there's hardly any facet of our life that isn't, like, quantifiable in some respects. So, like, except for the bits that like, people really don't want to know about. Um, and I'm real sus. We've had that many, like, inquiries and that many royal commissions. Um, and, yeah, I, that just reminded me of... Um, so, the, the commission into deaths in custody, for example, hardly any of those um, recommendations have been enacted and... You know, more people, more black people um, are in custody now and we continue to die. So it's, yeah, there is a really interesting relationship because on one hand, like, the part of me that is 
very politically active, it is very useful to have data. Um, but on the other hand, da getting data can be very intrusive. Um, a good example of that was the Northern Territory intervention where there was a, a problem that was, you know, a problem that turns out a staffer of Mel Bruff made it up. Um, Mel Bruff, who was a politician uh, during the dying Howard years, um, yeah, which meant all of these Aboriginal people, uh, Aboriginal men. Um, that's the interesting thing, I think. We're talking about the shape of power, and I find that fascinating. Um, I guess being black, I'm really interested in the colour of power, and more often than not, it is white. And I do wonder if we... Even if we had... Yeah, I, I wondered how I'd feel looking at something like that, if they were... Where those lines would go if it was white women giving money or white women, yeah, they, it's, we don't necessarily, I want there to be solidarity, but there's not, a, they, it doesn't often make sense, or sometimes it is white women who are the oppressor, which I realise if you're a white woman is a weird thing to hear, but anyway, back to the Northern Territory intervention, um, so a problem was created in the media, as I talked about before, black women were cowering in their hearts or we were absolutely victims of these black men and we just didn't know what to do. And so black men were all pedophiles, of course. And then, um, yeah, so the military went in and then a big part of that was testing all of these black children for, um, for abuse and for sexually transmitted infections and absolutely traumatising for the sake of data so data can be a weapon, I guess, and it can be weaponised in a good way or it can be weaponised in a, in a very oppressive way. And in, in that case, it was really oppressive um, and very tra traumatising for those young people. So that's something that comes to mind when you're talking about data. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't have any views on surveys, so... Can we have a question from someone who's not the same as the first two people that ask questions? I have this. Uh, I read this wonderful poem recently about um, the Donald Trump era, all 12 months of it. It feels like a lifetime. Um, where the poet talked about their aspirations for a better world that they might live in, and that would be a world in which they could live their life as variously as possible and I thought this is a really lovely aspiration and it's something that I think we might think about again in relation to our own lives as well and how we practice and enact our personal relationships in the context of what's going on politically around us. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks, Nayuka, for saying that because I found it really hard to listen to that really long talk about data without it. Intersection, like the intersection of whiteness in that in environment, and it's like, yeah, it is like even in this crowd, it is really white. It's really hard to speak right now to that context, and it's just really hard to hear that like use of we as women when it's so often not talked about. When that we doesn't feel like it's uh, I'm part of that we a lot, and then it's like. I just would really like more specificity when talking about the women that you worked with and the powerhouses of women that you worked with, what that makeup of that woman and that constant acknowledgement. It was like, yes, there was a lot of white women around me or it was this, like, because 
it's just really alienating to hear without always talking about that we and like just thinking of power and domination and uh, yeah, that's like my experience in the arts institution is like a lot of the <sighs> direct oppressive acts that happen towards me from white women. So thanks for bringing that up. Did you want to have a question there? No, I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know if I want to hear any answers except from you. So, I don't know. Like... Um, so, this is Text Queen. She's really deadly. Um, definitely check out her artwork. She's the best. Um, oh, sorry. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, the way that... So I think one thing we have to do, and so on the event itself, it said it was for non-binary people. We can't, in, when we're talking about people, it's not women and men. Okay. Like, that is a very, in my mind, colonial way of thinking about gender. Not even in my mind, I didn't, like, people have been talking about this for, you know, hundreds of years. There is more than two genders. There are more, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that's what kind of... I wonder, yeah, I did think, like, looking at that, like, what other colours are missing there? Because, yeah, when we only construct the world in terms of women and men and, like, yeah, kind of... If we're thinking about who's not there, then it's, yeah, we... Yeah. Like, I think about Native American people, for example, or colonised people. They have many, many different genders, but, yeah, it's definitely... With colonisation, our gender was also colonised and imposed. So, this male and female binary, which exists, you know, which in my mind is enforced, or in many people's minds is enforced. So, I think that's something, yeah, something to keep in mind as well. Okay, then I do have a question. Of, like, what, as white women, do you do when you're included in... Um, male-dominated spaces, what do you do when you're included to also ask where are the women of colour, how many women of colour are in this show, like, where is the... who? Like, who is curating this show, like, that kind of thing, when you're included in those kind of things, like, what is the work that you do in those spaces personally to advocate for black, indigenous and other people of colour? Uh, I'll kick off with that one. Really good question. Um, so... In the, within the mainstream media, diversity is, uh, you know, appalling. It's, it's even at a progressive place like The Guardian, um, you know, it's mostly, it's white, it's um, not necessarily private school educated and it's a fairly evenly split between country and city. Um, we're advertising at the moment for an Indigenous reporter. Applications closed yesterday. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where we can't properly cover Indigenous issues without Indigenous voices. So, our coverage is suffering and so, therefore, we want to open it up because it's better for The Guardian, it's better for our readers, um, it's better for people who are affected to tell their own stories. So, that thinking's changing. Like, 10, 20 years ago, Sydney Morning Herald covered Indigenous issues... Um, and didn't think to hire someone specifically who was Indigenous. Um, so, there's been a shift. But, you know, I don't think it's happening quick enough. Um, the most interesting and, um, you know, 
I guess, live issues at the moment affect uh, women. So with the Me Too movement, you know, how do you report on that if you don't have a strong female-led newsroom um, who actually understand what it's like to be a woman? You know, issues around um, sexuality with, uh, you know, marriage equality. Now, how many um, non-straight people are in the newsroom reporting on marriage equality? You know, that's something that editors need to ask. Um, oh, yeah, but my question was, what do you personally do to advocate? In every meeting when we talk about, um, you know, we should cover this, we always ask, is there an Indigenous person who can write on this? Is there an Indigenous person um, who can, you know, talk about their perspective and then try and commission Indigenous voices? So I don't commission anymore, but that's very much a conversation that I'm, I was part of when I was commissioning, which was... Can we get more people in? You know, who do we know? Let's pull our resources. Um, I wasn't necessarily thinking that way 10 years ago. Same. I mean, every committee I sit on, I ask that question. Every single one. Every public event I attend, I try and talk about it. The whole idea of being open to a world that is, doesn't just reflect us, meaning me, my face, is the world I want to live in. And that's a world where we need those power networks to burst open. People think of networks as being somehow, like, like Naomi Alderman, that thing that she writes in the front of the book, as just being unfettered and just kind of stretching out as if there's nothing stopping the way the network flows and it's all really beautiful and stuff. That's not how networks work, right? Networks operate under processes of gatekeeping. They stop people from having that, that freedom to move. And that's experienced by different groups in, in society differently. Some people much more so than others. White women, much less so. Black women, much more so. Okay? So how do we open the networks up to give as many people as possible that freedom to move and to lead the lives that they want to lead, not ones that are constrained by white cis men, right? Middle-class men, which is what's going on at the moment. Men called David. And it's really problematic. And I, I try. I really, you know, I reflect on this every morning. Yeah, but it didn't really, it didn't really seem that your data was reflecting on that. In, oh, I, know. Can, I can't talk about race in the data because that's not publicly available and I only collected public data. I can tell you that when I described those male networks in the film industry and I said that there was one factor that linked them together and it wasn't race, it was schooling, that's because a number of men who are not white, cis, middle-class men, ran all-male teams, okay? There were Aboriginal men, filmmakers in there, who ran all-male crews. The, what that tells me is that the situation for Aboriginal women in Australia, Indigenous women in Australia, is much, much worse than for white women in these networks. And that's as much as I can draw from the data I've got. To do what you're describing, which I would love to do, would require me to get funding for a start because it would take years. It would take years to actually do the analysis over 10 years of film production. But I would love to do it. And I would love to work with someone who, who wanted to do that as well. When I've given this paper in America, um, African-American women in the audience who do have access to race data, to data around race identity, have done this work in their own networks. So it is possible to do it. It's the problem of what you were talking about before, Nayuka, about the, the ways in which data is collected about Indigenous populations in Australia is really, really stuffed, right? 
because it's often used as a way of trying to control them and create stereotype bias. Indigenous communities in this country are the most over-surveyed communities in the world, I reckon. And that data is not used to do anything constructive. And it could. I could use that data and do this network analysis and show you who are the white men that are obstructing the careers and lives and you know, personal options for Indigenous communities in Australia. But I can't get my hands on that data. And they're not doing it. The people who need to do it aren't doing it. But it's, it's a really, really... I mean, I think your criticism is absolutely spot on. It has to be intersectional. It has to be about not just being about white women and white men. Oh, I just... Um, oh, just re- Sorry, I don't know what it is. I'm normally a lot more funny, so... Apologies. It's not a funny topic. Um, but it can be. So, the... On data, um, is it data or data? I don't know. Um, um, whatever the word is, there's some really interesting stuff coming out. Um, actually, I think out of Melbourne Uni on data sovereignty. Um, so when it's like, yeah, I don't know if this applies, but it's black people collecting the information. Black people deciding what's important to black people and collecting that information in ways that aren't oppressive and ways that are actually useful for us. Um, Because, like, things... Yeah, we... Like you mentioned, we are over-surveyed and that information is used to oppress us. It's not for our benefit. It serves the government's benefit. But there are people... um, Yeah, I think there's a symposium later this year on black data sovereignty... Um, which, yeah, kind of combines a really boring thing with something really interesting. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, it'll be really interesting. And that's coming out of Melbourne Uni by black academics. Because, um, th- yeah, I think when, when, when we're in control of our own shit, things just work better. Um, yeah. Did anyone have another question? I, I'm getting anxious about this whole data thing. Um, I guess this is initially for Bridget, but can be expanded outwards as it's a very kind of social media related question, but you touched upon how there was a cohort of women in a print-dominated era at the Herald that were, you know, strong, powerful, very successful. My question is, with regards to comments on digital media, why there seems to be this need for affirmation from readership from what I would argue is meant to be... uh, institution of authority that comes within a you know, journalistic and a kind of news uh, sense. So, um, Wow, that was loud. Um, so I think uh, The Guardian did it as a way of opening it up and dismantling hierarchies um, that existed between the reporter and the um, audience. So it's kind of saying... Your, your view is just as good as ours, um, and it's a two-way conversation, which is a very noble thing. However, it doesn't account for the huge amount of um, trolling and hate. And um, I went and saw, I saw a, like a counsellor about it, and she says it's the uh, um, global super e- no, yeah, global super ego or the id. One of those terms, like some like huge nasty. Um, collective unconsciousness that gets unleashed on the internet. Um, 
And um, so, sorry, your question was about, like, at the start, why do we care? Why do we care, why do we care what readers think? Um, <laughs> so, it, it started, I guess, in the spirit of the internet, which was we care what readers think because we don't think we're above readers. However, some of the comments are now so um, ridiculous that, you know, th they're not adding anything to the conversation. And um, Richard Flanagan uh, said this great thing about reviews, which is he decided after being badly wounded in a, you know, by reading a, a terrible review that if he was not going to read negative reviews and he was not going to take that on, then he had to not read any review, including good reviews. So I think that's a really freeing thing. Like, you know, don't let your ego take the compliments without being able to take the shit. Um, you either have nothing and you exist in a sort of a lot more of a freer space or you take everything on board. Um, and the Atlantic last week or this week just announced that it was closing comments on all its stories and it was having, going back to the traditional letters to the editor, where the most kind of erudite or, you know, um, value-added comments were published as letters. So I think that's probably where it's going to go. I think um, I was thinking about this a lot about how, like, being kind of a young-ish person on the internet, because I do a lot of, like, op-eds and, like, social commentary stuff, um, and we're in this weird situation. It's kind of like a black mirror sort of a thing um, where you can be the news, are the news and like create the news and respond to the news almost in real time. And it's really weird, like this democratisation or whatever it is. Um, and it can be, I think for, for any people, it can be an extraordinarily powerful and like yeah, uplifting thing to be able to control that, like, control what's said about you or um, not rely, in the case of black people, not rely on white people to talk about you in the way that you want to be talked about. Whereas, you know, I can get on Twitter and, you know, maybe I'll make some stupid jokes, but other times, you know, I can make something that will gain traction and get people angry or, you know, people will know what's going on. So, on one hand, it can be really powerful... But on the other hand, I don't know if it's... I think there's something about the media, or not the media, the internet, that just makes people fucking brave. They will say shit to you um, that they would not be empowered enough to say in person. Like, they're not going to... No stranger is going to walk up to you. Actually, sometimes, actually. Most of the time, people aren't just going to walk up to you and call you, you know, say that you deserve to be sexually assaulted or that, you know, find out where you live or they wouldn't walk to, walk to your employer's office and, you know, say whatever. I think... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to know what people think, but I think it just reveals what kind of things about society and can encourage particular behaviour and that mob mentality which, once again, can be used for a good thing if someone says something racist or if someone's cooked it or if a company's cooked it and should do better, they, they should know the impacts of what they, what they say, you know, what that has on people. Um, because often, say, as a black woman, you know, Revlon or, I don't know, whoever doesn't care. Um, but, yeah, if it affects their margins or whatever, then they're going to have to care. 
Um, yeah, so it can be a good thing, but also a bad thing, and it gets really meta, and, like, we're living in the internet, and it's weird. Um, but it's like, yeah, I often want... I don't personally read what people say um, because I am not interested. Um, I care about the opinion of my community, and I have other ways of finding out. My people aren't writing below the line. They, they'll just tell me. Um, normally it's people, yeah, and it's nice to hear, see positive things, but yeah, often it's, people will just find an in, and it might be that you're a woman, or it might be that you're trans, or you're black, or you're fat, or you have the audacity to leave the house, but they will find it, and they will use it, because they don't agree with what you have to say, and they just fucking move on with their day, they move on, they don't, they're not thinking about the 9.15am inbox they sent to you telling you you should die, they just go to their thing, whatever. But you're the one left with the inbox thinking, wow, this is society. So, who knows? I just said it's like someone taking a shit in your inbox and just walking away. I ended up in 4chan recently. That was fun. Um, I was... I wanted to be a man. I was a man. I should be a man. Um, all the variations on that. Um, and... My eyebrows were just wrong. I don't know why. There was no explanation. And those, like, but the thing we have to acknowledge there is that those comments are transphobic. Like, that is, like, inherently there is something transphobic about that. So, yeah, now that, now that I'm on it. I think the marriage equality was a really, if we're looking at women in the media or people in the media or oppression in the media or whatever, that was a really good example where thinking about those five things I said before... You know, who's there, who's not there, what's being said, who's writing it and whose benefit. Um, largely in the discourse of, you know, marriage equality, it was trans people being thrown under the, you know, under the bus, as the saying goes, um, but absent in all of the critique and, well, not all, but most of the critique and most of the analysis was trans people. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just interesting that often it can come up, but we don't realise what... Yeah, the heart of the criti- the heart of what someone's saying. Um, anyway, do you have a question for Nat, please? Uh, I was just going to say about in with regards to the plebiscite. I thought you know it just showed shock in leadership for a start, but it also showed the power uh, that still exists between church and state in this country because I think that the church really came out. You know, the church in this country are pretty organised. They've got cash and they really got their shit together and it was just shocking to behold, really. Um, And people, you know, had to endure that. It was pretty bad. You know, governments now, I think they took the nation really rock bottom last year. It was particularly divisive time. And they didn't have to do that. They chose to do that. So it's really, like, pretty bad. And it cost a lot of money to enforce all that heartache. It was pretty bad. Yeah, it's not the money. It's the heartache. It cost people personally in really terrible ways. Um, This is for uh, any of the panel. Um, I was late, so I I apologise. I guess... Um, we're all, I'm here um, to explore these ideas and also 
I want to be an agent for change. And my question is, you know, in my small way, how can I be an agent for change? What would be your advice? In, and I know that's a big question, but it's the small things. It's the small things that add up. My advice? Oh, okay. Um, to be an agent for change, like, uh, don't read stuff, don't read The Australian, um, don't read News Limited papers, don't click on Daily Mail stories um, that exploit people like Tareen. Um, don't consume media that's really gendered, so I'm talking about things like Daily Life, um, Rendezvous, all the female-centred sites that are absolutely neutral on... Like, they're agnostic. They don't really care about women or not, but they care about clicks. And so if you're clicking on, like, hundreds of stories that are about celebrities having cellulite, then the news organisation will give you those stories. They'll give you more, and that will perpetuate like perpetuate the problem so just be really discerning about what you read like be um you know stay away from the trash and read stories um by indigenous people by uh non-binary by people of color by women and those if those stories get a lot of clicks then more stories will be commissioned and you'll create um a kind of different media landscape because the media landscape is not inherently evil it just goes where the traffic is and it goes where the money is. So you do have quite a lot of power in that situation. And capitalism is evil. Um, yeah, I reckon find people who... I think um, we talked about the cult of celebrity before, but um, there is, in I think, in the Australian landscape, there's, like, money to be made in outrage. Um and there are people who don't necessarily profit off that. Like, outrage is important, we should know, but some, you know, we should know if shitty things are happening, but sometimes people can exist just to talk, yeah, talk about that shit. Um, so, like, looking, finding people beyond the kind of instantaneous, and that's why I recommend people like Amy McGuire, who, like, is really relentless and just, she writes what, yeah, often what black people care about and she does her own thing and she is in it for the right reasons. So finding people, um, yeah, finding people who are kind of genuine and doing really cool shit and supporting them and finding different ways to support them. Um, I think something we haven't really talked about, um, something that can be really tough as a writer is like, the kind of precarious nature of it all. It's very, like, freelancy, and it'd be interesting to look at where money goes and who it goes to because um, men do feel more comfortable to pitch shitty stories or are very confident and, um, yeah, so they'll, they often just go in and do that and whatever. So, yeah, just finding, finding people you genuinely want their opinion or you genuine you know they're in an interesting place in the world um, or reporting on interesting things someone else I'd really recommend actually she's not black but she's deadly um, Gina Rushton she's at BuzzFeed and she um, she writes um, she does a lot of reporting and a lot of interesting journalism on reproductive sort of health stuff she kind of just yeah, I don't know who's watching, like, if, if many people watch her stuff or, 
you know, it might not be going viral, but once again, like Amy, just really relentless in, yeah, just making sure different stories get told. Um, yeah, finding good people wherever they may be and supporting them um, and not giving your money to shit. Um, yeah, I don't know. Overturned capitalism, decolonise, yeah, all that good stuff. Um, I think also that we need to um, teach kids how to disseminate, you know, false news is now looking quite often like real news, um, but there are a few indications that it's false. But it can be so, when it's coming up in a news feed, it can, I think that we need to teach young people how to... Uh, try and work out what's good news. I think those questions that you ask, you know, who wrote it, why did they write it, who's benefiting from it, I think they're key. You know, we're all consuming the media the whole time. I think you need your wits about you at the moment, I think, uh, to work out the good from the trash. And, you know, we're all on limited time. You just don't waste your time looking at uh, what you don't need to, unless it's for a reason, you know, to attack it. Um, for me, I think trying to change the world implies that you have the capacity or power to do something differently, okay? Not everyone has that. Some of us do. I do. Many people in this room probably do. So it's about reflecting on that, on your privilege and your power, and working out what you can do more creatively with that, to create a better world, and that means sitting down and thinking about, for example, making genuine connections to people who do not look and sound like you. It means leaving the stage. It actually means exiting. It means walking away, but not in the sense where you walk away and just leave a vacuum. Walk away and leave someone behind you who doesn't look or sound like you. Okay? It's absolutely critical. It's not just men, although I did focus on them today because it's the subject of today's topic, but there have been some really excellent questions and observations that it's not just men, and I think this is true. We have to reflect on our privilege and do better, and do better for the generation behind us, but not in a generation's time. Okay? We have to do it now. And um, when the question was asked before about what I do, I often now turn down keynote speeches and give them to someone else who doesn't look or sound like me because it's, I get enough airtime. It's not just about my, my observations or my research. We can all do that okay. in, all our, in all our lives and in all our worlds. And so when I talked earlier about wanting to create a world where you can live your life as variously as possible, I really, really mean that. We have to be intersectional. We have to be intergenerational. We have to, we have to take on the idea that we don't complete the world in and of ourselves, that the world is more than us, whatever that us is, however you define that us. Okay? And that's, that's a, a, about having an, a, a day-to-day ethics and, and waking up every morning and doing your best to live up to those ethics and that's, that's an ongoing and active engagement that you have to make every day. It's not something where you just tick a box and go, oh, I did that this week, done. It's actually something you confront in all the situations where you make connections and relationships around you. 
Um, and I think that that makes activism very difficult, but it does put the onus for activism on people who have power. And I think it's too hard for us to keep saying that it's up to um, people in minority positions or minority power positions to create the change. Like, that's just stupid, right? It's, it's not possible. We need to do it. Well, if there's no other burning questions, I think it would be a really great comment to end on. And I'd really like to thank all of our speakers today for their generosity in sharing all of their experiences. It's something that was really common to each of your contribution was your uh, sharing your personal experience and openness. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, please give a big round of applause to all of us. I would also like to thank our Auslan interpreters, Cynthia and Cindy. And just a brief note to say that um, this talk was recorded and will be released as a, as a podcast uh, on both ARCA's and Pavilion's website. And all of our upcoming programs as well will be recorded. Um, so we hope to see you soon, uh, and if not, online. Thank you.